The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, <clears throat> in a few weeks, the uh, United States will celebrate its Independence Day, the 4th of July, which uh, I've often thought of as a nice Buddhist holiday, Liberation Day, since, <laughs> since that's what uh, you know, Buddhism is a lot about. But America has a second Independence Day that uh, is growing in recognition. And now something like 40-some states, some have some recognition of it. Some states like Texas have it as a national, as a state holiday. And um, this is, it's called uh, Juneteenth Day for today, June 19th, June, Juneteenth Day. And it's uh, America's second Independence Day. And in some ways, it completes part of the first one. Because it's very strange, this first, uh, you know, America declared independence, the United States declared independence from England in July 4th, 1776. And that's recognized as the beginning of the United States. Independence, freedom. But their freedom that uh, was claimed with that, pluck, uh, that declaration was for people of European descent, mostly, for white people. And with the beginning of freedom for white people, the United States simultaneously uh, instituted slavery for people of African descent in the United States. It's quite a remarkable thing to think about that this day that we celebrate independence is the very day this country sanctioned slavery for a big part of the population. So what kind of freedom is that? And then they had this, they sta stated, all men are created equal. But, <laughs> there's this big but, right? And I guess they meant men, since they're the ones who were given the vote, the males. But uh, all men, but then they had all these uh, uh, mostly African-American slaves, but uh, slaves of a few, a few other ethnicities, that, um, you know, were they really equal in being slaves? So it became a kind of a paradox and kind of a, a problem, I think, for the, the health of the country that they had to kind of negotiate this idea that all men are created equal, but we, we have to justify why or apologize for or explain why some people don't fit that criteria. So it became a kind of strange uh, ethical uh, negotiation that many people in this country had to live. Many of the white people had to kind of f figure this out, you know, what to do. And I, I must have been, you know, I imagine that for the white people who had to figure out this ethical issue, um, I hope it wasn't easy for them, because I can imagine that it, it you know, can't be easy to shut down and close down and treat the whole population of human beings this way especially when the foundation of the country is a certain kind of creed, a certain kind of dedication to something. So then, uh, June 19th, uh, almost, you know, 100 years later, 90 years later, uh, June 19th of 1865 was when, they think we, people, historians think, 
that the last slaves in the United States were finally freed. And that was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation that uh, uh, Lincoln signed, declaring that all slaves would be free. And, uh, and uh, that day, there was a, I think, general or something, army officer came to Galveston, Texas, and made the announcement that all the slaves there were now free. And, um, and so it's celebrated as a holiday uh, in Texas and other places. Nowadays, I think in, in the 1980, I think it became a holiday in Texas. And, um, and so uh, it's used to celebrate um, African-American accomplishments, African-American contributions to the United States. It's used to celebrate the freedom, the independence of African-Americans. And I think that's great, really wonderful. But I also think that uh, there's a tendency to, uh, especially among majority, dominant white population in the United States, to uh, kind of look the other way too often and kind of say, what's them? Their freedom, their independence. That's nice, isn't that great? But isn't it also kind of a freedom for the white people? When, the, when, the, when there's no more slavery, when they're not having enforced slavery in this country? Isn't there some kind of problem for the people who were slave owners? What kind of ethics is that? What kind of life was that? What, what ways did they have to close their hearts down to be part of that system? They were also, in a certain kind of way, enslaved in their attachments to that system, in the attitudes they had to the slaves, they also were kind of caught in this horrible system. And there was a, a moment there where they were freed from that. Uh, a moment. Because here's, a, I think, a, a quote from um, one of the great uh, African-American historians of the United States, W.E.B. Du Bois. He was the first African-American to get a, a doctorate from uh, Harvard University. And uh, was one of the great, uh, not only historian and sociologist of America, but also uh, he studied the African-American situation in, America, in the United States. And just like Martin Luther King, by the end of his life, he started noticing that poverty was a big issue in the country. And he became an activist to try to deal with uh, poverty. And just like Martin Luther King realized, you know, actually, this whole idea of war and the war machine and global war is a big issue. And he became uh, an a, a anti-war activist. And, in fact, he became one of the first people, probably in the United States, um, to be tried, had to go to court, for uh, uh, opposing uh, nuclear weapons. In 1951, I don't know if he went to jail, but he had his passport taken away because it's kind of, you know, it wasn't quite right to be opposed to nuclear weapons in 1951. So he was a great American. And he wrote this about um, uh, referring to, you know, this, in the, uh, you know, when slaves were freed in the United States in 1860s. This... The slave went free, stood for a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery, towards slavery. So for those of you who don't know, that in the United States, 
uh, there were many states, especially in the South, that instituted Jim Crow laws, all kinds of laws that limited the rights, the voting rights, the owning property rights, rights of congregation, of coming together, all kinds of things were, were um, uh, put in place. And, uh, and some of these laws uh, are still kind of, a little bit in the books, uh, still kind of struggling with. But, you know, it's kind of remarkable that uh, the right for African Americans to marry anybody they wanted to, at least the, the opposite gender, um, uh, was only granted in 1965. That was just about, you know, 50 years ago. I think 65 or 67. Lovins versus Virginia was a famous uh, case in the Supreme Court 50 years ago. So here's an interest, I, for me, uh, you know, reflecting on this and reflecting on the humanity and what it's like to be present for in this life as a human being and pay attention to what's going on. When I was, um, my, um, my, um, my father-in-law died three years ago. Uh, he uh, was a Dutch Jew who was born in, I think, in, in 1926. And he, um, as a Dutch Jew, uh, him and his family went to the German concentration camps. And uh, he spent a number of years in there. And he was a relatively privileged prisoner. And the people, he was in a special group. So uh, something only like half of his group died in prison. That included his parents and, and a lot of people he knew. But he survived. And, um, and it, you know, it uh, probably damaged him in some ways uh, for the rest of his life. But he did a lot of work to heal himself, and he had, had, a, he had a great life after he came out of the concentration camp, after he made his way out of the war and all that. But it was a formative experience. So about um, just before he died, three, four, three years ago, a few weeks before, we kind of knew he was passing away, my son, who was then fifteen, I think. I think it was three years ago, four, three or four years ago. But someone was fifteen, and my son loved uh, loves videos and doing documentaries. So he brought his video camera with him, and uh, we sat in the in his in his living room, and my son uh, videoed him uh, about his stories of being in the war and being in the camps and what that experience was like. And I've had conversations with my father-in-law about this before. And, um, and he gave a little bit of a toned-down story to my, my son about what that was like in those camps and the experience of it. But still, um, it was the first time my son really heard those stories. And, you know, I think it made a big impression on him. Formative time in his life to hear the stories of his grandfather. So he, stir- he heard, my 15-year-old son heard stories that took place about 70 years before. There's a good possibility that, that if my son lives for 70 years until he's 85, he'll remember those stories. They'll still be, I think there's a fair chance that he's going to look back at those stories and be formative in shaping him and his understanding of life and all that. This means that 
some 140 years after the end of World War II, there's someone for whom World War II still lives as an important impact in the formation of who they are and how they see the world. I think that's remarkable. And so the other day, the last retreat I was teaching, there was someone who uh, was a descendant of people who were part of the Armenian genocide. And it was still very much present for her. And the idea that, world, that the Civil War and slavery was, you know, 100 and f- about 150 years ago. It's kind of cl- close enough in time that there are people who are still very much affected by it. It hasn't gone away. And then if you think of, of people who are released from slavery, the trauma of slavery, you know, they were released and they were, they were penniless. Some of them were homeless. That's traumatic. And they had to figure out with no help how to make their life and how to go forward and then to start having these limitations put on them and restrictions put on them and all this. One of the restrictions in Texas was that... Um, they started celebrating pretty quickly in Galveston the Juneteenth Day, their independence. But then they were, they were prohibited from um, congregating anywhere to get together to celebrate. Wow. So then they, got, they banded together and raised money and they bought their own uh, land to make a park. And that, then they were allowed to celebrate their, own, their, their freedom. But what, why, what I, why I wanted to talk about all this today there is a kind of Buddhist reason, a practice reason. I, don't know, I didn't want to just give you a history lesson. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be welcomed if it was just that. Is um, the idea that, uh, you know, what is freedom for any individual? And what are we blind to when we think we become free? I think the white people thought they were free, but were they really? A big impact... Um, on me and this whole uh, idea of racism and experiences of different races here and uh, slavery in the United States was a conversation I had with um, Ruth King, an African-American Dharma teacher, a great teacher, and who's given a lot of attention to these issues. And now writing a book on uh, mindfulness of race. And um, we were having a conversation, and uh, I was asking her about the relationship between... Really, I was, it was very personal, my relationship to African Americans and how that... kind of said something about it. And she said... Um, she kind of turned to me and said, um, um, you know, uh, in America we're all kin meaning that the white people and the black people, I think that's what she was meaning, but we're all kin. And that, when she said that, it, it had a big impact on me because what it occurred to me was that most African Americans who descended from slaves um, have white blood in them. Many of them uh, were uh, descendants of rape, of a plantation owner, and uh, all kinds of things that happened there. And, uh, and so there's a family connection between, you know, back, this back then slave time between white people and black people. And, um, and what, is it, what, is it, what was it like 
for a black person to know that your father was this, your owner and would maybe sell you off any point away from your own parents. Kind of, kind of maybe disowned you. What was that like for the black people? But what was it like for the white people to do that? What was it like for the white children of the white slave owner to know that they had siblings who were in the slave quarters? What was that like for them? I can't imagine it was easy. I can't imagine that they could make it easy unless they really shut down and closed down parts of themselves. They couldn't be free in that system. So the idea of what is freedom? What is real freedom for anyone at all? And when is it when we, are f- we allow ourselves to be free only in some ways, but we have blind eye to other ways in which we're not free? Or we turn a blind eye to the, f- the lack of opportunity, lack of freedom, lack of rights that other people have because we're busy with our life or we kind of don't think that we're busy, we're busy with our life, we think our life is hard and difficult and we're trying, just trying to get by. But to what degree, ignoring the rest of the system that we're in, the other people, is there freedom there as well? So what I believe about Buddhist practice and, and is that as we discover freedom through Buddhism, as we learn to recognize in our hearts and our minds the ways that we are uh, uh, suffering and suffering because we're caught in the grip of some kind of uh, compulsion, some kind of clinging, some kind of resistance, some kind of craving, some kind of very strong desire, compulsive desire, that we can't really operate as a free agent because that strong desire or that strong fear has the upper hand. And so we end up doing things and saying things and feeling things, believing things, which are not really for our own well-being. It causes us stress, it causes us suffering, it causes distress, depression, all kinds of things. And the function of Buddhist practice is to uproot the ways that we have our clinging and holding and resistance and all that, uh, so that we can see it clearly and release it. To really release it. And the operating word in Buddhism is release, not relief. If we're using Buddhism for relief, we might then continue to perpetuate all kinds of uh, ways in which we actually are caught in a system, caught in our psychological inner system of clinging and holding. We just kind of made ourselves comfortable. But to discover real release, to really be able to free ourselves, let go of something, to heal something very deeply is a function of Buddhist practice. But is that something we do only individually? Is it only good enough to become free yourself? I think it is if you do it thoroughly. Because if you do it thoroughly, you're going to notice what's going on around you. You're Not only that, but you're going to feel somehow intimately connected you're going to feel we're all kin, we're all family. How could it not be? Because, you know, this, the, this, our capacity for empathy, our capacity for understanding other people, um, uh, I think that, that, that blossoms 
when there's no resistance, no holding, no tightness, no fear, no blocks to it, no blind blinders on to see. So as we become freer, we feel connected to people. This evening, my wife read an article. She told me about. I didn't get the, you know, the, the citation or anything, but it seems to be a psychological study of uh, people who end up in positions of power. And apparently, they've done uh, brain scans of some kind to see what parts of the brain that get activated, and they've studied them, I guess, psychologically. And apparently, uh, there's a correlation that uh, people who end up with a lot of power develop less uh, empathy. They have less ability to read other people. Their ability to read and understand other people goes down. And, um, and uh, it's kind of remarkable. So slave owners had a lot of power. Their empathy probably went down. People who tried to keep the power after slavery, where was their empathy? People are trying to keep the power now it, you know, what degree of empathy do we, do we see in the United States with the people who are poor, the people who are oppressed, the people who are African-American? It's a huge issue right now, the degree to which people understand and have empathy for each other in this country. And um, anyway, but freedom, to really become free, sets free the empathy. And if it doesn't set it free, are we, f- are we really free? And if it's always some, about someone else who's free, or, there's, or we kind of keep ourselves separate and distinct, uh, maybe we can't really be free. So the issues that are true for African Americans are true for everyone else in this country. And this is very nice. I mean, this guy, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, he was a champion for African American rights. But as he kind of, it seems to be, as he studied these issues that he had to look at, he became a champion for Native American rights. He, bec- he began understanding the issues uh, for everyone. And, you know, I think that what's happening in this country is kind of a wake-up for, you know, to the needs of other people, what it means to be free. Um, the, um, it was only 50 years ago that uh, we celebrated it last week, the 50-year anniversary of Stonewall in New York City only 50 years ago. And uh, can uh, gay people be free if the rest of us are not free? Can the rest of us be free if they're not free? Where's, where do we share our freedom? Where's the intersection of it? How do we find it? So this has been what I've discovered for myself in the years that I've done Buddhist practice. It came as a surprise. It wasn't something I was looking for. And that was that uh, we're all kin. That is that as I grew in my capacity for freedom, as I learned to shed and drop and let go of many of things that I was caught up in, that my eyes, my heart began to open more and I started to be more sensitive to what's going on around me and the people around me. And that process continues to this day. And maybe it's a lifelong process, maybe it never ends. I think as as any individual keeps growing, developing, I think we all hopefully develop and grow our whole lifetime. As our society keeps growing and developing, and maybe societies will always grow and develop, that's the nature of it. There's no static fixed state for any of us. But 
as we keep moving into, it's like moving into freedom all the time. We're finding freedom all the time. It's not a done deal. I don't think that we can rest and be content, but now I'm free and feel like, you know, done what had to be done is the saying in Buddhism. I don't think it really works that way if we're connected to each other and then we keep growing. So to have freedom, Buddha's freedom, to have this practice that we're doing of mindfulness lead to freedom, we can't do it alone. It's something we do together, or something we find together, or something we're connected together. It's not a message that some people want to hear because some people really want to just find relief for themselves. They want to just kind of find some kind of way of coping with life better for themselves. And that's fine. I think that's a wonderful thing, important thing to do. But what you should know, that if you do, find looking for that kind of relief, looking for the benefits of mindfulness, stress reduction, and all kinds of benefits, healing things, watch out. Because um, if you do it well, the freedom's gonna catch up to you. You can't not, you know, at some point, if you do this practice, start feeling a kinship or a connectedness or a greater empathy to the world around you. And the, f- and the momentum, the feeling inside of wanting to be free will take precedence. And you'll discover ways, like I've, I'm still discovering ways in which I'm not co- totally free. There's, I have beliefs, ideas, bias, attitudes, understandings, blinders, all kinds of things I have as I go about our world and our society. Um, but, but uh, I'm confident that if I have this mindfulness thing going, that there's a kind of a force within that wants to move through that, wants to find a way. And sometimes it's a little hard to do that, it's awkward, but that's, that's the movement of this practice. And it's one of the reasons why I have a lot of confidence in this practice of mindfulness, because it's not something that's just good for, this, for the individuals, it's good for our society. And I think this is one of the th- purposes the Buddha had when he taught this. And the reason I say that is because of one little teaching the Buddha had, that he said repeatedly, where he defined what a wise person is. And he said that a wise person is someone who intends the welfare of oneself, the welfare of others, and the welfare of both self and others. Welfare for me, welfare for you, and for the welfare for we, the whole system. In one place, the Buddha, when he, the last one, the we, he said, uh, welfare for the whole world. And, uh, and I think that's the movement, that's the concern, that's the direction this practice goes. That's why the Buddha would say that. that we're not only concerned about ourselves, we're not only concerned about others, we're concerned with both. In addition to both, we're con- concerned with the system the we, how we all are together, how we're family together, how we're kin, how we work together, our society. I think that's the movement of this practice. I hope that's the case. And the fin- final thing I say, I'll say is that um, uh, in, um, in some uh, Zen traditions, in some Mahayana traditions, there's this uh, uh, wonderful teaching that um, to become, uh, uh, it goes, it's based on a, a, a little, little saying, only between a Buddha and a Buddha. 
that if you want to become really free, you, in some sense, in some Zen people say, you can't do it alone. You can only do it in relationship with other people. When Buddha meets Buddha, when a, a free person meets a free person. And can, are you ready to meet a free person and, and recognize each other? That would be, that's pretty cool. What would it be like if you're really free, really liberated, really at peace with yourself? What, is it, what happens when you meet someone else that way? That's pretty cool. A, a Buddha meets a Buddha. May it happen. May we all meet each other. So those are my thoughts for this day of celebration, the Juneteenth Day. And uh, I want to give you a chance to ask any questions or make any comments you'd like to do at this point. And if there's no comments, then I'm gonna. Then there's a risk if you don't have any comments or questions. Uh, then I might read um, a um, legal measure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But can you use the can you use the could could you thank you for the wonderful talk. Um does freedom necessarily goes with the happiness? With happiness. Well, yes and no. I think that uh, in and of itself, when freedom, the simple experience of freedom, especially when we really experience it fully for ourselves, like, you know, in a clear way, it often comes with happiness. But see, here is, um, see, freedom in Buddhism um, is, is a little different than how often freedom is thought about in the United States. I don't know if it's really fair to say it this way, but at least maybe the principle is what I'm trying to say. Some people think of freedom, they think about the freedom to do something. Um, in Buddhist practice, we're, we're uh, finding freedom from something. From limitation, from restrictions, from contractions, from fear, from suffering. If you learn to be free, and there's, your heart is open, and you no longer have those limitations, in and of itself, it might be a happy thing. But what happens if you encounter someone who's suffering? Then your heart breaks. You're at peace to have your heart broken. It feels okay to have your heart broken. It feels like it's right. I mean, why not? You should. You know, if you feel empathy and someone's suffering, and of course you're not going to be, you know, whistling happily and smiling and saying, you know, just be happy. <laughs> I think that that uh, uh, the freedom that we define in this practice means that our emotional life is richly or connected to what's appropriate in the world around us. And we, 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 we feel the emotions that are appropriate from circumstances. However, we're not stuck in them. So if we're in a situation that's heartbreaking, our heart is broken, we might cry but we don't get stuck in that sadness. When, you know, then we're, the next thing happens and we're ready for the next. Is that the answer you wanted or you wanted just... No, I want the answer you wanted. To okay. 
So move, can you move the mic over? So your talk and then the flag next to the Buddha reminded me of something, which was that um, when my daughter was very little, I used to sing to her songs from the play called Free to Be You and Me. And for anyone... I couldn't hear the name? Free to Be You and Me. Oh, yes. And for those who don't know, this was a fairly revolutionary thing in the 70s, which was a series of skits and songs and poems for children around the theme of men and women and boys and girls being equal and also not having stereotypes around those roles. And, you know, it was like a big deal. And um, now that my daughter's a little older, she got interested in reading the lyrics. And we were looking at it and noticing that even though that was revolutionary, um, there was no mention of gay couples at all, right? It was all male-female type relationships. And... I was talking to her about how, wow, you know, they thought that they were so cutting edge then, but no one thought about this other group of people. And I said, you know, and now, you know, there's been all these laws in the Constitution and the Supreme Court that it's become now more mainstream most of the time of, you know, gay relationships. And I said, but in one of the songs about different roles, it was talking about how mommies or daddies could be various different roles, but they said, but mommies can't be daddies or grandpas, and daddies can't be mommies or grandmas. And I thought, but wait a second. Now we're talking about transgender people, right? And so actually, mommies can be daddies or grandpas, and vice versa. And I'm like, that wasn't even considered in this. And I said to her, what other group of people are we not even considering that you know are feeling not part of society or feeling left out yeah. that we haven't even thought about yet yeah. in the 70s they hadn't even gone that far so yeah. i think it's a it's a great comment because i think uh, this idea of uh, the theme of today the freedom and is that there hopefully is a willingness to keep opening up keep being receptive to what we keep discovering and uh, where the where the where new rights where new you know identities new you know Freedoms for other people uh, are possible that we have we don't see it currently. I think a willingness to kind of at least kind of keep stretching, and that's why I think we're always growing. We're always growing in freedom, and um, and sometimes it's happening right. You know, in some ways it's happening quickly, and sometimes some ways it's happening glacially for some people. But I think it's uh, we we want more of it. That's the direction. Um, so, just comment about the article you mentioned. Uh, the extreme power had it was an MIT study shows correlation uh-huh. between uh, with a brain scan similar to TBI to traumatic brain injury. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think this is really interesting because that just came out a couple people, of days ago. There's studies about how um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the traumatic experience of slavery how that there's post-slavery uh, post tra- uh, traumatic experience. So the whole experience continues down through the generations f- for African Americans. But in this way, uh, maybe there was trauma for the white slave owners, right? And so there, it's also same kind of similar thing. And so, um, and that trauma also continues. And maybe that explains why there's so much um, hate and anger and things like that. 
in the, some of the white population uh, towards this whole thing because they also are struggling with their trauma. Yeah, the, the other point, uh, this progression that go into isolating groups and having certain judgment against groups, um, it exists in, in the same groups. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't need to be a person belongs to a certain color or a certain behavior or whatever it is. And, and, and that's, that's the, uh, um, these are like, I don't know what we call them, maybe bad seeds or, or you know, like the, the things could be on extreme, you know, people who abuse the power of others or the people who are being abused. And that exists um, across the board, um, amongst white only, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and amongst you know black or whatever it is, and and that's that's another thing that's always also um, maybe ignored or not looked at. I, I agree. So I think this idea of uh, freedom being a plant inside of us that keeps wanting to grow, and our task is to keep letting it grow. So we can keep looking at all the different areas where we close our hearts or our society closes its hearts to people in all kinds of different ways. And, um, and I agree, I agree. It's, it's within groups, it's within individuals, it's everywhere. It's, it's, you know, it's, but we're hopefully learning how to not do it so much anymore. So this is one of my hopes for, an org- for a place like IMC, for a Buddhist group like ours, is that uh, certainly, you know, I hope that we can be inclusive here to everyone. I mean, ideally, everyone would feel welcome here. And I know it's sometimes hard to feel welcome here for many reasons. Um, but it certainly is my wish that that's the case, that's inclusive, and it's a place anybody can come and use and be part of. But I know that that's also, you know, a little bit idealistic to say that because of so many different complica- complicating factors that go on, how people feel included and not included. And, and then the dynamics within a group. But one of the dedications that I have, and I'd like IMC to have, is that uh, we'll never turn our backs on anyone. M- meaning, part of, part of what that means is it, we're always ready to meet someone and talk about what's going on and find a way. No one's ever kicked out. No one's ever you know, said you can't be here. Everyone's welcome to come, and if there's challenges and tensions and difficulties, then we're, we're, we'll hang in there. No one's going to be asked to leave uh, uh, unless there's some kind of, you know, physical harm being done or something. And um, the, um, the idea is we're, we're here to meet the challenges and meet the, challenge, meet the difficulties and try to find our way through it. And I think that, that I, my hope, I think is that dedication hopefully will help us find our way to simply have the idea We'd like to be inclusive and be welcoming is important, but it can also be uh, naive because it kind of can ignore the fact that to really be inclusive, we have to deal with the difficulties, the challenges and the tensions that come up. I don't know if that responded to your statement, which was so good. It, 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 the statement probably, I'm, I'm prefacing a question maybe that, that I haven't asked yet, is um, this, this um, kinship that um, comes with that freedom and, and the sense of family, um, it gets out of whack when sometimes the essence of um, a, a real family is have something that has the opposite of that, has an, an abuse or has some where it's, it shouldn't happen because it's family, but yes. then it's happening to an extreme case inside of the family. Right. And it's causing 
way more damage to the family and the the kinship that it's yes, part of. Yes, yes. So how, how, what do you do with that? Well, well it's easy. You heal it. <laughs> yeah, I say that because it's a big topic, right? I mean, uh, hopefully it can be addressed. And can it be addressed on the... Sometimes it has to be addressed as an individual because it's hopeless to do it as a family. Sometimes the family has to address it as a whole. Sometimes it's a, it's a, some of these issues of family abuse and family challenges are part of a wider systemic issues of, the, you know, of economics uh, you know, and discrimination and bias and oppression that goes on in this country more widely. It's connected. It's not independent of that. So which of those do we look, three areas do we look at? Do we help the individual? Do we help the family as a unit? Do we look at the social conditions? Do we do all three? Who does what? How do we do it? When's the right time? Um, but uh, the important thing is that something get done. And if the abuse is really, really strong, uh, hopefully someone will step in and stop it, say this, this has to stop. There's an intervention if it's too strong. That, that's what occurs to me. I don't have any much more wisdom than that at the moment. But I appreciate what you said and your question, and that's very good. So, uh, so I will read the legal statement. And then we'll stop. Uh, this uh, a few days, some days ago, um, at the California legislation, legislature, um, there was this measure was introduced. It's called ACR 100, and it's uh, called Juneteenth. This measure would recognize June 19th. 2017 as Juneteenth and would urge the people of California to join in celebrating Juneteenth as a day to honor and reflect on the significant role that African Americans have played in the history of the United States and how they have enriched society through their steadfast commitment to promoting unity and equality. Whereas Juneteenth, also known as Juneteenth Independence Day, Emancipation Day, Emancipation Celebration and Freedom Day is the oldest African-American holiday observance in the United States. So that's, uh, I don't know if it passed, but today is a state recognized as a state of California's Juneteenth Day, but it's certainly recognized in Redwood City (laughs) today. So thank you all.